0: Constructing for the Climate, the Road to Net Zero. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating.
1: In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector.
0: Today we're joined by Victoria Burrows. Victoria is Director of Advancing Net Zero. World Green Building Council's pioneering global programme to accelerate total decarbonisation of the built environment. Victoria has a background in the sustainable development industry and has co-authored the book, A Whole System Approach to High Performance Green Buildings. So Victoria is perfectly placed to discuss today's podcast episode, Constructing for the Climate, The Road to Net Zero. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: Victoria, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. In terms of getting our discussion started, the World Green Building Council has a programme to accelerate the total decarbonisation of the built environment. Could you explain a little bit for our listeners what this means in practice?
2: So the World Green Building Council is a global network of around 75 national green building councils all across the world, representing a total membership network of about 44,000. That represents all sorts of different organizations across the value chain. And we launched Advancing Net Zero in 2016 because we realized that we need to do more than creating buildings that are a bit less bad or a bit more green, if you like. We need to be really accelerating action towards creating better buildings, better spaces, ones that are much more energy efficient, resource efficient, and ultimately are on that journey towards net zero emissions. So advancing net zero is all about understanding what that means for the built environment and working with our green building councils and partners to try and understand what that looks like in reality. And it incorporates this concept of the ambition loop the idea of the ambition loop is that if we want to change something, yes, regulation plays a role, but that simply can't happen overnight. So we do call for better regulation, for more ambitious regulation, more bolder regulation in terms of driving better outcomes from the built environment. But that regulation won't happen overnight. So we work with front runners from industry who are taking steps well in advance of what's required of them based on what's required within local codes, in the way they build, in the way they use, and the way they operate their buildings. And we use those examples to be able to call for specific policy measures. So what's working well? What are we learning? What could be scaled up in terms of industry action that could be achieved at scale through regulation? But most importantly is that we need to also equip the industry to help deliver against those enhanced regulations, enhanced standards, the increased demand for better buildings. And that's where the Green Building Councils really come into their strength because they create the tools and resources that can help equip their members to deliver more sustainable outcomes for the built environment.
0: And in terms of the programmes and tools and resources you have in order to equip your members to help them navigate the road to next zero, could you tell us a little bit more about what those programmes and tools are? This is a huge challenge, right? You mentioned at the beginning that we're
2: trying to achieve total decarbonisation of the entire global building and construction sector by 2050. That is a huge challenge. The sector is notoriously resistant to change, shall we say? I've spent time on construction sites trying to implement paper-free offices. It's really difficult to implement some of the big things that we're calling for. It requires no less than a complete transformation in the way we design our buildings, the way we build them, how we build them, and the way we use our buildings, and the way we value what exists within those buildings, particularly when it comes to deconstruction of those buildings and optimizing the opportunities for retrofit of existing buildings. So... We know it's difficult and we know that it's a huge challenge. And so what the Green Building Councils do is take that global vision that we've set from advancing net zero, take the definitions that we've created, the best practice principles that we've been developing and understand what that means to apply those in a local context. So what does a net zero building look like in the UK, for example, compared to the US, compared to Canada, compared to Australia? Completely different market, completely different context. We also need to think about how we adjust and how we focus on our retrofitting our existing buildings in markets where we have lots of buildings, like within Europe and the US. One of the biggest challenges there is renovation of existing buildings. But when we look at Africa, Asia, areas where we're expecting huge amounts of growth over time, we also need to think about how we're optimising the way we're building our new buildings and the infrastructure within those buildings. So mostly it's about working with industry to help them understand what that means to achieve net zero buildings. And that often comes in the form of frameworks or guidance. We create roadmaps at different country levels because even a country that geographically sits next to another one, their roadmaps and how they achieve net zero will be very different because it'll be a function of what the grid currently looks like, or what the current building codes look like, what the historical buildings might look like, and how they need to be approached in terms of ensuring that those buildings will be optimised for the future. So it really ranges from things like rating tools to help verify a building that's better than would not otherwise have been built under the code and regulation requirements, calculation tools to help understand what your whole life carbon impacts of those buildings are, and also lots of training and education, webinars, even accredited professional training programs where we're really helping to upskill the industry in order to know how we can apply some of these concepts into the real world. At an organizational level, there's lots of other initiatives out there that help drive change. Companies are setting targets under science-based targets under the climate plodge within the Race to Zero really trying to understand what it looks like to achieve net zero across your organisation by 2050. And the World Green Building Council has the Net Zero Carbon Buildings Commitment, which is specifically focused on emissions from buildings, both your operational emissions from the energy that you use in using the buildings, so heating, and cooling, lighting, powering those buildings, but also the embodied carbon that comes from creating those buildings. We have a whole life carbon commitment which recognises the businesses who are actually taking action towards achieving net zero whole life carbon on their buildings by 2030. And that's important because we learn, again, a huge amount from front-runner businesses in industry who are taking those actions now, knowing what we can apply in terms of today's technologies and approaches, but also what needs to change in terms of business models, tools and technologies. What are the gaps and how can we fill them? And so, again, the Green Building Council is a well positioned to help us understand what those gaps are and what initiatives we need to bring to market to help drive uptake.
1: As you said there, Victoria, lots of tools to equip the sector. And also, I think fair to say, a lot of change that needs to happen. And therefore, of course, you're at the forefront of witnessing that resistance to that change and the need for a complete transformation, which is no easy task for you or for anyone. What do you think are the main barriers to green building that you see in practice?
2: So we're seeing net zero buildings popping up all over the world in different climates, different building types, huge buildings, small buildings, even buildings in hot climates and cold climates. So we know that technology is not the barrier to scaling up solutions. We know that we have technologies that exist that can be applied and increasingly competitively. The business case is also strengthening. So we also know that it's less of a financial barrier. And so what really remains is a knowledge barrier. It's the mindset shift that needs to happen for us to really question and challenge how we are building and using our buildings. And shouldn't that change? Shouldn't that be adjusted to being on a more energy efficient and resource efficient and carbon efficient model in order to make sure that we're on a transition towards net zero? And actually we hear from project teams that Their barrier is a lack of access to finance. They can't find the additional finance that it might take to create more sustainable projects. When you talk to the banks, they'll tell you that it's not a lack of finance. It's a lack of bankable projects or projects that are really going out there to set, again, high or achieve those higher performance targets for projects. So it's actually about trying to match the finance with the projects and ensuring that there's that verification in place to show that the project really has tried to do the best it can. And then has actually delivered on those promises and has helped to achieve those performance targets. So, I think if you ask a lot of people that question, finance will be the first answer. But actually, we're finding it's the issue is mobilizing that finance. And the mobilizing finance comes from the lack of maybe understanding or that mindset shift that we need. And that's why, again, we focus so much on, on training and education. So, we do, yes, need political support, we do need incentives and regulation but that won't come unless we see an increase in demand. So we also need to be increasing the awareness around the achievability and urgency of the need to shift to a much more efficient and more regenerative model when it comes to building and occupying our buildings. We need to be increasing demand for high performance buildings. And sure, that could come from the public, but actually that's more likely to come from investors and developers and companies who are setting those targets and the additional expectations being placed on the sector in terms of how we're delivering these projects and how that aligns with ESG goals. So I think in terms of affordability. It's easy to associate green buildings or sustainable buildings or net zero buildings with more expensive projects. That's not always the case. And we're trying to bust that myth through some of the reports and outputs that we put out, because if you really take the right approach to a project, it shouldn't be more expensive. So for us, the biggest barrier is to scaling green buildings, not just to green buildings, but to scaling the solutions we know are possible, is that
0: demand and awareness of the benefits that could bring In terms of increasing understanding and increasing demand from investors, and you mentioned that the business case is also strengthening, beyond sustainability transformation, what co-benefits do you see for the construction sector for investing in a sustainable built environment?
2: That's a great question. We do need to be thinking of the co-benefits. In some markets, the business case will be stronger. Then you just need to look at the way that the price of solar panels has fallen almost entirely driven by increase in demand. Like That's the way the world goes around, right? We need to be increasing that demand. So the business case is strengthening. And we actually put out a report called Beyond the Business Case in 2021. We actually set out to prove that even if the business case is not stacking up, that there is a social value proposition that means you should embrace a more sustainable built environment. And that ranges from the expectations of your shareholders, the expectations of your tenants, the expectations of your staff, even. We're finding, hearing that people coming into new companies or coming to interview for new companies often cite a company's sustainability credentials as a reason of why they want to work for that company. Staff attraction and retention, actually, when you really start to look beyond just the finances in terms of the capital expenditure in relation to a higher performing building, and you really think about the risk of not being able to lease your asset in the future, the not risk of not being able to continue with a business because you're not able to hire and retain that talent. The creation of more resilient buildings against increasing temperatures, the greater increase of extreme weather events, the more that we fail to address these emissions and especially from the building and construction sector, but also the creation of jobs, how a just transition can support the transition to a more sustainable built environment. Ultimately, this is about creating better nicer more healthier places for people to live and work and play and go to school in and so for us it's really about that creating sustainable buildings for everyone everywhere and why you would choose not to do that so it is important to embrace those social outcomes we know that that people that spend time in more sustainable offices might be also more productive and so actually if people is the highest cost to you as a business then things that affect your people you should really pay attention to and it turns out The places you put them in to work is one of those things. So, we actually concluded from that report in addition to that strengthening business case and broadening value proposition when you include those social aspects, you simply can't afford not to invest in a sustainable built environment these days.
1: Victoria, in terms of that, you have the client pressure effectively there that the people who commission buildings need to think about the very rational, logical reasons why it's not just good, but makes business sense to have green buildings Yep. and as a separate point you also made there's this challenge for the industry which is as you put it really well this mindset barrier for green buildings do you think there's an awareness across the construction sector of the importance of carbon in design a building or do you think we're still a little way off having that cross-sector understanding
2: so i did talk about the mindset shift that we need to be achieving and that is our remaining barrier as far as my personal view is and we do need to crash through that barrier because that is the answer to scaling up some of these solutions and the good news is that we are seeing pockets of innovation from the sector companies that have signed up to the net zero carbon buildings commitment for example who are setting those targets and that is to achieve net zero whole life carbon across their operations by 2030 and then looking at actually what does that mean to do that how do we then apply that to the projects we're working on what does that mean for our own spaces what does that mean in terms of the energy we procure how can we make our buildings better as a result of that and actually we're finding that companies once they develop that action plan for themselves are implementing these things well ahead of 2030 because it was again by not knowing the opportunities, having not set those targets and not really looked at the detail into what that would involve, they weren't aware that there was some significant benefits, real low hanging fruit and real things that could be implemented quite easily with minimal disruption to the occupants of their buildings really relatively easily. And so we share some of these updates through a commitment roundup, a kind of news stories roundup, because we're finding that every month we're hearing good news stories from companies who are going out there doing this, who are going out there and applying these concepts and principles to their projects, to their own assets and getting some real benefits from that and then telling the world about it through press releases or reports or stories. And that for us really inspires more uptake because it's proving the possible. And I think the more we can prove the possible, the more we can help with that mindset shift. And yes, there's a long way to go, but we know that it's possible and we know that it's coming. And the fact that it's coming, it's a case of This thought process that if you're not ahead of the curve, you're going to be behind it. This is not a case of if a regulation might come in or an investor might ask you to deliver your next building as a net zero building. It's a case of when. And so as an example, there's companies like Hudson Pacific Properties, who are a real estate investment trust in the US. They built the EPIC building in LA, which is LEED Gold certified, but they also have one of the largest building integrated solar panel systems so actually there's solar panels in all of the walls all the external windows as well as on the roof and they did that because they knew it was necessary to make this building best in class and if they did that they would attract a good tenant and they have netflix have taken that building on a very long lease so as a result netflix looking to sustain and fulfill their own sustainability obligations were looking for a high performance building and this is when epic was on the market and ready for them so It's a case of what do you need to do across your own value chain, along your own business activities in order to embrace that opportunity and prepare yourself for this transition? Because inevitably, and just around the corner, hopefully your clients, your tenants, your investors will be asking you for this and you need to be prepared with the right answer. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult to continue to operate in the market as it transitions to a net zero economy.
0: In terms of the mindset shift that we really need and the preparation we need across the board and the action we need across the board, what role would you like to see construction sector's legal advisors playing here in enabling investment in a sustainable built environment? Again, it's really about
2: understanding what role you play in that very complex ecosystem of delivering buildings. We have Dozens of examples of projects achieving these high performance standards, so we know that it's possible. But we also know that we can't solve this problem or achieve this vision building by building. It has to be systemic change right in the way that we are delivering on our buildings the most important thing is that we understand what this all means right people need to know how much energy their buildings are consuming they need to know the risks the key physical and transition climate related risks of not taking action And so I think that can be a really helpful mechanism to to drive change. If you're not convinced on the science, if you're not convinced on the money, then you've got to be convinced on risk. That is fundamental to every kind of business activity. And so that risk mitigation is a really important consideration and the role of your buildings and your assets as part of that risk mitigation strategy, I think is really important because it also helps support access to finance in the case of not taking action. I think, as well, from a building's project point of view, there's, and I would say emerging, but actually not particularly emerging in some markets, there's other ways of contracting on projects that can help deliver higher performance outcomes. There's a model from the States called the integrated project delivery. And it's actually an approach which is an entirely different philosophy to the one that we're particularly used to within the UK or within Europe, where you tend to have a client who decides they're going to build a building. They choose their favorite architectural conceptual scheme, the architect designs it up, and then an engineer then has to make that building high performance. And then a contractor comes along right at the end and then figures out how they're going to build the thing. The idea of IPD is that it's much more collaborative, it's much more performance-based, everybody comes on board at the same time, and you're advising how an impact from an architectural point of view, let's make this wall entirely glazing. And you can figure out the impact of that on the performance of the building and the buildability of it in the space of one workshop or one session, whereas that might have taken a lot of time, a lot of wasted time before. But the reason that I mention it in relation to your question around the kind of legal side of things is that as part of that contracting process, all stakeholders share in a portion of the successes or failures of the project. And they can also be linked to performance-based KPIs. So we're not just talking about how is a building built, but we're talking about shifting the focus to how that building will perform once it's been built and how it will continue to perform and therefore provide more value to the ultimate building owner and the building users versus the kind of moment that the keys get handed over. And so I think, again, supporting that mindset shift is to sort of shift to value, really valuing purpose over profit in terms of those crucial decisions that are made throughout construction phase of a project or as part of the design process of a project or even as part of operating it or choosing to either acquire or otherwise a building, how are you valuing that space? Not just in terms of how it looks or what its cost per square meter is, but actually what is the carbon value of that project. I would really love to see those sorts of decisions shifting to questioning why you would choose not to embrace net zero? Why would you choose to buy or acquire or occupy or build a building that is not net zero? That's a choice today. So asking why you would choose not to and actually even better making it a requirement of the project to explain and justify why you're choosing not to, I think inevitably will create better outcomes.
1: You've spoken about proving the possible. And I really like that because it reverses all of the negativity that sometimes people can have about net zero buildings. In terms of putting that proving the possible into practice, what are your three practical tips for advisors helping their construction sector clients navigate that reduction?
2: So I think the first I think we've mentioned already is data. You can't decide where you're going to make capital investments in improving buildings unless you know what that impact is going to be. And that's ultimately where you're going to need to make decisions over which to prioritise those low-hanging fruits or those bigger capital investments against an upgrade schedule with a building that might mean you need to be updating in line with market trends. Otherwise, your building's simply not going to be leaseable in the future. And we're already finding that's the case in Europe. So data, which means carrying out audits of your buildings or carrying out whole life carbon assessments on your new developments and understanding how your design decisions or your operating decisions of your buildings is affecting the carbon outcomes of that project and therefore attaching that to risk. The second one would then be once you have that data and you're using that within your organisation to inform decision-making on what projects to use, what investments to make in terms of technology, please disclose that data because we need benchmarks in order to say to governments this is what good looks like and this is how we need to be transitioning the industry. We need to have a data from buildings and that exists in many forms, but not in one place and not in a form that we can use in order to really call for bolder regulations. There's really great examples of disclosure programs around the world, such as the compulsory building disclosure CBD from Sydney, We're actually by requiring buildings to disclose their energy performance, they can compare against the building next door. And, you know, it becomes a bit of a competitive edge. And we're finding improvements and investments being made to improve those buildings as a result of that disclosure of those buildings. So the transparency of that data is super important. And then thirdly, I think I already mentioned it, but attaching value and risk against that data. So understanding what that means in terms of your building performance and how your buildings will be valuable assets or not in the future, prioritizing purpose over profit. So choosing to renovate an existing building instead of perhaps the cheaper, quicker, easier route of building a new one. I really encourage people to drop the consideration purely on the money terms and thinking about what that means in terms of carbon value. Ensure that every decision you make is not purely based on cost. I know that's hard, but you'll regret it in the future if your decisions are only made on cost today. And I think ultimately all of that comes down to the fact that we really can't delay any further and there's no more excuses for not applying this stuff, these concepts, these approaches into your buildings because it's possible, it's necessary and it's going to be expected of you very soon, not just over time, very soon. I hear many reasons why people aren't doing those steps. And it might be, yes, we need the benchmarks and the frameworks and the tools and the sort of perfect one-shot solution. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist. And sorry to the point you. And we simply can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. We simply have to be taking action where we can. As I said, the sector is very complex. One individual building is very complex and you cannot apply the same suite of solutions to help reduce your energy consumption, your carbon emissions improve the health and well-being, improve the productivity of of your tenants and all of those things. There isn't one single package of solutions and two buildings next door to each other will have totally different solutions. So it is something that needs consideration, but the longer we delay, the more we're adding to the problem. So for us, it's now shifting into a kind of uncomfortable territory of obligation and duty of care and actually Why are we choosing to invest in buildings that simply aren't up to scratch or up to performance and will be scrutinised as such in the future? So my kind of call to arms, if you like, is just to ensure that wherever you sit along that value chain, that you are enabling the transition as much as you can to a more sustainable built environment throughout your work and throughout your practices, however you can help influence that change.
0: Thank you very much, Victoria. That's been a fascinating whistle-stop tour of the urgent and necessary systemic change that we need and it's interesting to hear that it can start with just being conscious and having the right knowledge and information at your fingertips and that's a very good place to start particularly for our construction sector advisors thank you very much thanks for listening at 39essex chambers we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors you can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.